0: Hey, everybody. It's Ben, Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Welcome back. I hope you're doing extremely well. I've had a tremendous amount of time, like many of you guys, to reflect on life, to reflect on what really lights my soul on fire. And I hope you're taking advantage of Every moment that you have that's different right now to become conscious of the things that are maybe unconscious. Bring them to that superficial level where you can start to explore your unconscious and and this new reality world existing in. See it as an opportunity because you're becoming mindful. You have to become present because you're out of routine see it as an opportunity to shift. See it as an opportunity to change and become the best version of yourself in any slight way. Identify the things that you're doing that are the greatest time restrictions. Identify the things that you're doing that are not contributing to your goals. Make sure you have goals. And use this time to create constructive habits. I think there's a lot of people right now sitting around and maybe negatively dwelling or wasting time. And, you know, I had people telling me that they've consumed everything that exists on Netflix. And like, is that contributing to you hitting the ground full speed sprint when the stuff stops? And I get we're all in stress and I get we're all in overwhelm, but, you know, leveraging some of the information that you have received over the last couple of years on breathing, on stress management, on meditation, on mindfulness is your greatest opportunity to slow down the heart rate, to slow down the mind, slow down the breathing rate, become present and change, shift, create the mind that you're after. It's allowed me an incredible opportunity to explore what I love to do, what lights my soul on fire, and start to chip away at those things that I don't love to do. And I hope each and every one of you is thinking like that. And There's a lot of things in life that it's very easy to become busy without being productive. And I've I've literally chopped away at tons of things. And the reason I bring this up is because today's guest is certainly one of the most brilliant guys that I've ever had on a podcast. The amount of information that you're about to be exposed to is nothing short of remarkable. And I highly suggest you stop what you're doing, take out a paper and pen, and get ready to take serious notes. I'm staring at two pages of notes that I took during the podcast while chatting with Ben Greenfield. So I've known Ben for quite a while now. I've been a fan of his podcast for a long time. And I think if you don't know Ben personally, he comes across as an extremely intelligent guy, but sometimes just a little introvert, in which he absolutely is. But if you take a moment to get to know Ben, if you could take a moment to learn from Ben, you realize he's this altruistically genuine, brilliant, brilliant human being who really wants the best for everyone he encounters. And I absolutely love and respect this guy tremendously. Super grateful for having him on the podcast. In fact, we did this one live in the Muscle Intelligence Facebook community. If you're not already there and part of that community, head over there now and join the Muscle Intelligence Facebook community because during this COVID time, we're going to record most of the podcast live in there to allow you to interact with us toward the end of the podcast. So if you had any interest in in asking myself questions or if you have any interest in asking any of the future guests a question, then you can jump in there. And toward the end of the podcast, what we do is we'll take about 10 minutes and we won't post these published podcasts, but we'll leave them obviously active in the community. And you can ask questions. And we don't promise to get to all of them, but if there's some that are very good and very relevant that will help many people, then we'll get on it. But Ben talks about things from longevity to peptides to inflammation and continuous glucose monitors. We talk about Ayurvedic medicine and cleansing and his favorite types of foods and some amazing hacks he's got on how to create food at home, get into some really interesting esoteric conversations around parenting and around his beliefs uh, on how we should potentially experiment with improving our lives and mindfulness and and many, many things. And you're going to love this conversation. Um, As I said, slow it down. Don't listen on 1.5 or 2 because there's a lot of information here. There's a lot of big words and if you're not familiar with them it's going to be a challenge to stay with it you may want well to listen twice if you do enjoy this podcast if you do enjoy helping other people in your life as much as i do go ahead and share this podcast with one person you know and love because this one definitely is a game changer today's podcast is brought to you by blue blocks also ben greenfield is a fan of Blue blue blocks i know that blueblocks.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X, super grateful for our sponsors letting us do this and continue to do this during COVID because you guys realize there's a lot of businesses right now that are suffering, guys, including podcasts, right? Podcasts don't have sponsors. They can't produce. It costs money to produce these things, and we're super grateful for Blueblocks, and I hope you guys are supporting it if you are able. Blueblocks is going to hook you guys up with 15% off. If you go to blueblocks.com, you can use the code MUSCLE. B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com and use the code Muscle for 15% off your next order of Blue Blocks. And if you haven't already tried the Blackout Mask, it's awesome. It's really plush, it's really soft, and definitely something that I recommend, especially when traveling or if you're someone who has to sleep in a room that isn't completely blocked out of light. So without further ado, Special shout out and thank you to Blue Blocks and Ben Greenfield for this podcast. Enjoy my conversation. That's it, Mr. Ben Greenfield. It's been a long time coming, man. I'm so grateful <laughs> to listen to your podcast for a long time, and I'm so grateful to have you join me here on your walking treadmill, making me, uh, <laughs> making me jealous.
1: Yeah, I was going to go outside, but I'm lazy. I just popped down to the office instead. Although, yeah. I actually, I, I never know how these live video things are going to shake out on a phone, so I'm probably more stable on a on a computer.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to ask I, you very weird questions and make you do things that are odd. For, you know, well, guys. I don't
1: have a selfie stick for my MacBook yet either, so there's that. <laughs> I'm
0: sure that's coming, man. It's going to be like a waste.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Time. <laughs> I'm sure somebody in China is working on it. Absolutely. So cool, man. Dude, you just wrote a book and I think it's an incredible resource for everybody. And I mean you went so deep on that. I had no idea you were working on it that level. And it I mean, what, a thousand pages or something like that?
1: No, because basically I I learned this in writing the book. Apparently the printing press or whatever you call that they use to to make a real paper book these days can only handle about the max around 650 pages. So that is what the book is about 650 and
0: you uh, put it online.
1: Yeah. The, the manuscript when I turned it in was about 1200 pages because I worked on it for around three years. And it, and originally I was just going to write a book about anti-aging and longevity. So I got kind of started to shift out in performance and fitness and a little bit more into health span and lifespan and, you know, just looking at everything from the blue zones and longevity hotspots and, you know, everything from the different bitters and herbs and spices, fasting strategies that folks like those are using to, you know, the Russian research on peptides and, and what a lot of, you know, even U.S. clinics are doing in the realm of everything from, you know, horm- hormone replacement therapy to plasma therapy and ozone therapy. I thought that there was a lot to fill a book on anti-aging but it just kind of took on a life of its own and wound up you know I, I just wound up delving into into brain optimization and cognition and smart drugs and nootropics and microdosing psychedelics and then got into fat loss and muscle gain and kind of more minimal effective dose of exercise and biohacking fitness and then of course realized through through a lot of the the initial writing on on anti-aging, how important purpose, happiness, spirituality, family, gratitude, love is. And so I wove a lot of that into the book. And so the, by the time it was done, it wound up being more of kind of like a human blueprint book than an anti-aging book, but it was like 1200 pages long. So we had to cut a lot, but yeah, you're right. I, I didn't have to kiss all the babies goodbye. Cause we just made like a special like web page for each chapter and just put all the all the cut content and extra resources and podcasts and articles and stuff like that on, on those pages.
0: Yeah. I've obviously shifted as well from my focusing on building muscles to now longevity and health and, you know, health span. And, and as you say, relationships are such a big part of that. And, you know, mindset's a big part of that. I'd love to hear how you quantify longevity. You did such a, a deep dive into longevity. I think it love to start there. It's like, how do you begin to objectify that like is there a quantification metric you're looking at are you looking at telomeres are you looking at inflammatory markers Or what are your kind of like x number yeah. primary markers
1: yeah it's it's such such a rapidly emerging field you know when you look at what guys like david sinclair are doing now and horvath with methylation clocks that's kind of probably the most cutting edge and most accurate way would be to measure dna methylation but that's a difficult non-scalable relatively expensive test right now to get and of course prior to that you know from a quantification standpoint telomere analysis is something a lot of people have done there are some relatively accurate labs that are doing telomere analysis such as spectracell or life lengths or uh, repeat diagnostics for example but that's still just largely a measurement of a small number of cells and the rate of telomere shortening doesn't necessarily reflect what's occurring on, on a global cellular level within the entire human body. And neither can you say that the rate of telomere shortening is necessarily reflective of overall lifespan prediction. It's one measurement, and it's one of the probably one of the better tools that we've had up until this point. And I've certainly done telomere analysis multiple times and noted. You know, especially with with particular strategies, less exercise, fasting, NAD supplementation, peptide supplementation, and and stem cells probably being the most notable. I have noticed that my telomeres have indeed, from a biological age standpoint, improved compared to my chronological age. But I, I think there are other markers right now that are just a little bit more scalable and accessible to the general population that go beyond telomeres from a quantitative standpoint i would say probably the two most important are just glycemic variability and inflammation you know the the former something that you can measure via hemoglobin a1c blood glucose insulin igf you know just a general you know a general checkup from a blood standpoint on insulin sensitivity and glucose regulation i think that that's well correlated with all cause risk of mortality just the the extent to which and the number of times that your glucose is uh, going on excursions during the day. So I think blood glucose stabilization is is one. And uh, of course, with continuous blood glucose monitor, even if you're going with, with, you know, like one of the cheaper models, that's a little less accurate, but still will give you good data. Something like a freestyle Libre, real time glucose monitoring, I think is pretty effective for keeping your finger on the pulse of that glycemic variability. The Dexcom G6, I think is more accurate than yeah. the, than these freestyle monitors. And, you know, if you're concerned, if, if you're one of those people more concerned about non-native EMF or dirty EMF, so to speak, the Dexcom is also kind of like the lowest uh, radiation-admitting blood glucose monitor that you can get if you're going to get a continuous blood glucose monitor. And, of course, if you want to go the real cheap route with a little bit more labor, you just get AccuCheck or a blood stick monitor from a Walgreens or a CVS. And... You pay attention to whether or not your blood glucose is, from a postprandial standpoint, returning back to stable values within about two hours after a meal. You know, you look at your morning blood glucose, and for the most part, you generally want that to be somewhere below 90. Monitoring blood glucose, I, th- I think, is one decent metric, and then the other would be inflammation. You know, just like a, a quarterly checkup or a couple of times a year, a checkup on CRP, cytokines, homocysteine, fibrinogen. Just these general markers of inflammation, and interestingly, you know, because chronic inflammation tends to correlate pretty well with heart rate variability, and because we know inflammation chronically can affect tone of the vagus nerve, you know, you could via just daily HRV measurements using a Whoop or an Aura or you know a Lead HRV or a Biostrap or any of these other HRV measurement tools. Kind of guess as to what your inflammation levels are. If your HRV is consistently low, you're generally guaranteed that you have somewhat elevated levels of chronic inflammation. But I would say heart rate var- or uh, or glycemic variability and inflammation would be the two that. That I, I think are the best ways to track how prone you are biologically to aging. And then from a qualitative standpoint, when we know that there are also certain metrics that correlate to aging, three, for example, would be walking speed. That's one that's been shown to be a corollary. You know, I I know you're a big fan of walking, as obviously am I. And what I tell people is walk at a slightly faster pace than your mind wants you to walk, right? Like, like just it's, it's, always ask yourself, am, am I taking an extra step count? There's actually a, a cool device. I'll talk about the other two metrics. In addition to walking speed in a second, there's a cool device. It's called a uh, counter pace and it's basically a, an app that ties to a heart rate monitor that you wear while you're walking. And I, you know, I kind of got disillusioned with being tied down to technology while exercising, you know, when I was, doing Ironman triathlon and racing for Team Timex. And we'd just, you know, we'd show camp and get like eight different straps that we had to put on our body. And, you know, so we're paying attention to, to power and step rate and heart rate and all these different metrics. And it just got exhausting. And I get to the point where I just, I enjoyed being unplugged during exercise. But this counter tool is kind of interesting to experiment with at least for a couple of months to develop a feel for the relationship between your heart rate and your walking speed, because in, in medicine, they'll use for, for cardiac recovery patients something called enhanced external counterpulsation, I think, I think is what it's called EECP. And what it is, is, it, is it's basically like these boots that you wear that contract during the phase of your heart at which blood is returning to your heart. Right. And it, it essentially allows blood to flow better throughout the body. But it turns out that as you, the muscles in your legs contract, it can produce the same effect if the muscles are contracting at the same time that the heart is in, I believe it would be the diastolic phase. And so what this counterpaste device does is it directly correlates your heart rate to your walking speed. And so as you're walking, let's say you're walking... BPM is, I don't know, like 75, then it would basically try to, I'm sorry, let's say your heart rate was at 150, right? It would start to beep to try to get you to a walking speed of 75 so that your walking speed correlates directly to your heart rate and it's essentially like poor man's enhanced external counter pulsation. So you're teaching yourself how to actually pump blood back up to your heart in a better manner as you're walking. But I found that it really helped me develop almost subconsciously this relationship between my walking speed and my heart rate after using it for a couple of months. And I don't use it anymore, but it was really kind of a cool tool to almost train me to to walk at a slightly greater rpm and the cool thing is it also enhances cardiovascular function based on that blood flow return effect there's, so that's kind of a kind there. of a cool device there's what's a, that
0: there's a tech kind of like a norma boot where they will strap you up and, and do that as well is that something you've experienced so you know what i'm talking about it's, it doesn't involve walking like, yeah
1: yeah, that's that's the expensive device. That's the one that that would do this in in more of a medical therapeutic setting. And I like those Normatech boots, by the way. And when I heard about enhanced external counterpulsation, I think it was Joe Mercola who showed me like this seventy thousand dollar pair of boots he has at his house. And you know, and then we got to talking, and and I th- I think he told me about the paste device, and I got that and started experimenting with it. But I also you know wrote the G lad over at Normatech, the guy that runs that company and their lead engineer, and asked if the, if those boots produce a similar effect. And they don't. The Normatechs are a recovery device. I was actually speaking of the devil wearing them last night. You know, I'm still a fan of sitting around doing some computer work wearing those just because the gradated compression, you know, I think those are some of the nicer compression boots that you can use. But yeah, the counterpace device is kind of similar to those super expensive counterpulsation devices, but it doesn't require quite the investment it's just an app and a heart rate monitor and then in addition to walking speed the other two metrics are grip strength which is of course something that that you can easily track using a dynamometer and there's also a cool device in the grip strength realm called the zona i don't know if you've you've seen that but it's one of the only blood pressure devices that doesn't you know involve supplementation or pharmaceuticals to lower blood pressure using biofeedback with a grip training tool. I interviewed the guy on my podcast like five years ago when I came across it. I still think it kind of flies under the radar, but that Zona device is a really cool way to use grip training to specifically lower blood pressure. So for anyone who has high blood pressure, that's actually been clinically proven to lower blood pressure. Uh, My mom has high blood pressure. And uh, interestingly, a lot of people right now At the time that we're talking, we're talking about blood pressure just because the interaction between the coronavirus and the ACE receptors dictates that those with high blood pressure are probably at higher risk of susceptibility to the virus. And while this blood pressure device doesn't necessarily downregulate activity of, of of the ACE receptors, it does do a pretty good job at increasing grip strength while simultaneously Lowering blood pressure—it's just like a contract-relaxed type of exercise that you do for about five minutes a day. And so, grip strength is another one, you know. And you can also, you know, just track hang time from a pull-up bar, hex bar, deadlift—things that that would involve grip training. And then finally, VO2 max. And VO2 max is is something that normally you'd get measured via indirect calorimetry at a you know an exercise physiology laboratory or, or a health club that might have access to a you know, a, a cardio coach device or or a med graphics device or something else that could measure your maximum oxygen utilization. There's a few different wearables. I think Garmin has one. I think theirs is called the Phoenix. That, that's a wearable watch that will approximate your VO2 max based on your heart rate during exercise. But really the gold standard would be you're actually wearing a mask that's, yeah. you know, that's measuring sure. carbon dioxide produced yeah. and oxygen consumed. Yeah. I have a home device that was just shipped to me for measuring VO2 Max. And I it's just it's actually uh it's on the floor of my living room. I was planning on actually giving it a go this weekend to see how accurate it is or or to see how user friendly it is. But the idea of being able to just wear a mask in the comfort of your own home, hop on a bike and measure your VO2 Max is something that's that's gonna be Something we see more and more, but at, at this point, you know we do know that maximum oxygen utilization is is definitely correlated to longevity. So there are some fitness metrics you can track like grip strength, walking speed, VO2 max, and then I definitely say glycemic variability, inflammation, telomeres are interesting, and then gold standard right now would be like a like a methylation clock measurement.
0: Interesting, man. So I'd love to come back to insulin because where do you like to set your morning and, and post-prandial insulin levels? Because like I, I think you're shooting for optimal. I think a lot of my, my market and demographics are shooting for optimal. I think you said under 90 is kind of this general place, but someone who's looking to really optimize lifespan.
1: For insulin or for IGF?
0: Sorry, for resting glucose and insulin, actually.
1: Okay. So for insulin, generally, if you look at laboratory reference ranges, I, th- I think what they're saying is acceptable right now is below 9 insulin and I don't recall the the units that are being used for that but generally what I see more among like functional medicine practitioners is wanting a value that's below two for, for your average daily insulin levels and then for IGF sweet spot I believe is somewhere in the range of like 150 to 180 which is what a lot of again functional medicine docs are using as their more accurate reference ranges for addressing true lack of insulin resistance or or true insulin sensitivity that's kind of a a general marker for insulin would be insulin below to an igf and kind of that 150 to 180 ish spot for not completely having zero anabolism or or not having any insulin but having it low enough for that anti-aging effect and then for glucose generally below 90 you know that that's genetically just from a biochemical individuality standpoint going to be pretty variable, you know, especially in folks who are following like a low carb ketogenic diet, generally they'll see it range a little bit lower for the hemoglobin A1C, usually below somewhere around like 5.2 or so is a good metric. In athletes, just because you tend to see the red blood cells lasting a little bit longer period of time, hemoglobin A1C sometimes isn't that great of a measurement versus just using like a continuous blood glucose monitor. So you got to be a little bit careful with hemoglobin A1C if you're an athlete, just because of the, the difference in the red blood cell longevity in athletes. Now, interestingly, when I was wearing that continuous blood glucose monitor, I'm not wearing one anymore, but I wore the Dexcom for a year. And it was actually really interesting, like, like the data that you get out of that when it comes to what actually lowers blood glucose, right? So, so we know that a lot of people talk about things that can cause a temporary state of insulin sensitivity to lower blood glucose, like a couple teaspoons of Ceylon cinnamon a day, or a shot of apple cider vinegar before you have a meal, you know, strength training to upregulate glute four transporters you know prior to something like a like a carbohydrate feed a bear bitter melon extract you know metformin is of course something that's popular nowadays too as a blood glucose control agent but a couple of interesting things i found were there are food sensitivities that seem to impact blood glucose pretty dramatically like my blood glucose spiked multiple times when i had green beans which was something, you know, my wife would a lot of times do like green beans with roasted chicken, or I'd have like green beans with a side of steak, or I'd go to like the, you know, the whole food salad bar and throw some green beans on the plate. and I would always see an unexpected rise in blood glucose for what I would consider to be a low glycemic index carbohydrate. Hmm. And so I went and got what I would consider to be kind of a gold standard for food allergy measurements, which would be a Cyrex panel. So I ran a Cyrex array and, and they do a lot of really good arrays for like gluten cross reactivity and, and true food sensitivities. Like you don't get a big laundry list of false positives because they do things like test the, the raw versus the cooked protein and the white blood cell reaction to that. And they do a double test for every single protein that, that they test and they, they just do a really good job. So I'm, I'm impressed with that company. I'm not commercially affiliated with them in any way. I just, I just like what they do. So with most of my clients, if I'm doing a, like a food allergy or food intolerance test, I'll use the Cyrex panel and mine was pretty clean, but I was like full on red light, like a void for green beans. And so it's interesting that, that my blood glucose response when I would eat green beans, Seem to agree with that, which is kind of it intuitively makes sense, right? So we know, and this was something else that was interesting that I found that when you drink a cup of coffee, your blood glucose elevates, just because you get that cortisolic response that causes a little bit of glycogenolysis. So the the liver is going to release glucose into the bloodstream, and that's kind of what you want when you drink a cup of coffee. That really isn't that harmful from metabolic standpoint, just because. That's a very transient, short-lived spike in blood glucose that gives you that energy that you kind of want when you drink a cup of coffee. You're not seeing, you know, large elevations in blood glucose that lasts a long period of time, you know, that you would experience if you had a bag of M&Ms or a stick of cotton candy. It's like a quick rise in blood glucose, then it's gone, but it is pretty high. Like the highest my blood glucose got during the day on many days, because I eat a relatively low carb diet. And usually when I do eat carb. Rehydrates is in a post training state would be after my morning cup of coffee right so i would get up yeah. to like 180 after having a cup of coffee but again it goes away pretty quickly like the blood glucose drops pretty quickly when you think about that and how that's kind of a cortisolic response then it makes sense that foods that you might have an intolerance or an allergy towards would produce that same type of fight and flight response that same type of, of potentially inflammatory or cortisolic response and so it's kind of interesting how you can kind of get a little bit more tuned in even without something like a food intolerance test to foods that your body may or may not agree with that you would not expect to cause a rise in blood glucose and then another interesting thing i found was that you might find this notable also like the number one thing that I did while I was wearing that blood glucose monitor that would drop my blood glucose, like down to the fifties or the sixties, even after I've had breakfast, after I've had lunch, all the way up to dinner. you know what it was? Morning cold soak. Not a long one, you know, like a, like a five minute morning. Now, usually I'll go take a cold shower. A lot of times I like to do the sauna or a morning walk in the sunshine. Those are my two favorite things to do in the morning. And I'll always go and take a cold shower or jump in the cold pool real quick afterwards, but we're talking like two, three minutes. But if I do a longer cold soak, like almost to the point of shivering, you know, like five, six, seven minutes around in there, like the impact on blood glucose is amazing in terms of lowering blood glucose for a really long time afterwards. There was one point when I was in uh, I was in Switzerland at this European medical clinic, really cool place. Actually, they do a lot of Lyme, mold, mycotoxin, cancer treatments, using a lot of European biological treatments like mistletoe injection therapy and, and hyperthermic chambers and ozone and some really cool things that a lot of U.S. clinics aren't doing or, or can't do based on FDA regulations. So I was there for two weeks. I had a group that I brought over there just, just doing a variety of different treatments. There's a lake that was about a two-mile hike out. So I'd hike to this lake almost every morning. And one morning, I jumped in the lake and I stayed in there like 20 minutes. And this was when I was still wearing that Dexcom. And my blood glucose was about 40 to 50 for the entire rest of the day. And they have like some pretty good, nice, big organic meals there. And so I was not restricting calories or even restricting carbohydrates appreciably. And still, blood glucose was just like low, 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 almost all the way until I went to bed. So these longer cold soaks, I think they can potentially be excessively stressful to the body, but it's notable that even just like brief bouts of cold have a pretty significant impact.
0: Do you see that affect your body composition? You always walk around with shredded, man, but did you see a significant impact in your ability to kind of oxidize more fat?
1: I didn't measure fat oxidation. That's kind of a little bit more difficult to measure without, again, like like an indirect calorimetry tool, like one of those VO2 max measurements. I do stay pretty lean year round. But I think that's more genetic. I mean, daily, I have a practice of a 12 to 16 hour intermittent fast and then some kind of morning fasted movement that's relatively parasympathetic or easy. You know, I don't like to do a hard workout until later on in the afternoon or the early evening. And I typically always kind of combine that with a little bit of caffeine to mobilize fatty acids and a little bit of cold, you know, typically after my walk or after my sauna to accelerate that effect and to get a little bit more of the adipose tissue turnover to brown fat. But, I think, for me, my leanness is mostly genetic. my dad's super lean, and you know he was actually over at my house last week, and i was I was kind of lecturing him a little bit because he 's not exercising at all right now he's uh follows the the orthodox religion, so he has a pretty intensive fasting protocol, a lot of periods of protein restriction there 's a lot of rules in that orthodox fasting calendar that I have yet to wrap my head around. What do we have for we had for dinner that night shrimp because he couldn 't have scales or meat and i was trying to, to find some kind of protein we could have that you know because fish have scales and and they got meat, so you have shrimp so we had shrimp he does a lot of fasting he does a lot of uh, sunlight exposure because he lives on a little farm out in idaho so he's just like walking around naked on his farm all the time he's really into water like he drinks a lot of really good clean water because his business is he's a he's in the water filtration industry and he, he's really he's really into uh, structured water yeah. So, he drinks a lot of structured water. He fasts a lot. He's in the sunshine a lot. So, despite not lifting weights or exercising very much at all, you know, he's like 60, I think he's 64 now. He's probably like 9% body fat. And so, and my mom's pretty lean too. So, I, I think a big part of it for me is just genetics.
0: Very cool, man. So, one thing we, we didn't really go into there with longevity is protein. And there's all this conversation around mTOR and MPK balancing and, you know, you need to minimize your protein intake. And people are looking for anabolism, like your dad's case, you want to maintain muscle. Where do you sit on that spectrum of mTOR really being implicated in longevity?
1: I think that sometimes people get a little too myopic in terms of painting it from a black and white standpoint. I do think that exceeding about 0.8 grams of protein per pound of body weight, for most people, the excess nitrogen balance from that may actually cause a little bit of an accelerated aging effect due to constant mTOR stimulation or very high nitrogen balance. And I think that, that dropping below about you know, 0.55 grams per pound is for most people not even going to allow them to build muscle and, and not even maintain muscle and things like sarcopenia might slip in at that point. That all being said, I think that if you have periods of autophagy and autophagy triggering mechanisms that are just staples in your daily routine. And I'm talking about like hormetic stressors, like sunlight, radiation, cold, heat as a regular part of your practice. I'm talking about having some type of fasting protocol, you know, somewhere in the range of, of 10 to 12 hours daily for women, 12 to 16 hours daily for men, along with a few times a month, a 24 hour fast, like a dinner time to dinner time fast, I encourage people to do something like a fasting mimicking diet on a quarterly basis, which is what I do. I use a little bit more of an Ayurvedic approach. I'm not a big fan of meal kits, so I don't do like the, the Prolon meal kit or, or something. I do uh, more of an Ayurvedic cleanse once a quarter uh, using a, what's called a Kaya Kelpa approach. So I'm eating a lot of a lot of Kitchery, some ghee, some olive oil, a little bit of celery juice, but generally about 40 to 50% of the number of calories that I would normally consume four or five days in a row on a quarterly basis. So that's also a you know pretty significant autophagy triggering mechanism. You know, exercise, lifting weights, aerobics, et cetera. If you're engaged in a lot of those autophagy inducing mechanisms, then the concerns over protein are not that high. I do think that excess protein and excess mTOR stimulation is an issue, but I think it's it's less of an issue in people who are already doing a lot of these things that are kind of hormetic or autophagy inducing as it is. And I don't pay that much attention to protein restriction so long as I'm moving, so long as I'm intermittent fasting, doing cold, heat, breath work, sunlight exposure, you know, and then that fasting, fasting mimicking diet on a quarterly basis, even the inclusion of of a lot of these bitters and herbs and spices, and, you know, arguably even black coffee and tea and things like that. I I think those are also going to induce a little bit of a hormetic effect and it's more about balance. But I'm definitely not a a low protein guy. I think that you can have adequate amounts of protein as long as you're engaging in a lot of these autophagy type of practices.
0: And one of the things I respect and appreciate most about our time together was your level of respect for your environment, for your food, for kind of this holistic organism that we all exist in. And I love that you were talking about that a little bit more that kind of came from and how you really spend time to honor your food. You're very, very aware of not being wasteful and ultimately consuming things that are going to be energetically valuable for you. And I think that's a little out of left field for my audience, but I try to walk them down that path a little bit and just to be respectful mm. you know, being
1: Yeah, I think there's a few considerations there. One, a more spiritual consideration and one, a more perhaps practical logistical consideration. One would be this idea of just approaching food from a very parasympathetic standpoint. We know that enzyme production, that the gut permeability will increase enzyme production, will decrease salivary enzyme production, pancreatic enzyme production, peristalsis will be affected. There's a lot of deleterious impacts of eating in a sympathetically driven state. If I need to go to an appointment, Let's say I have a 2 p.m. appointment at the dentist, and that's usually my lunch hour. I'll just fast and not have lunch if the choice is eating lunch in my car versus not having lunch at all because I simply will not eat in that sympathetically driven state. I make smoothies in the morning, but I make them very, very thick, so thick that I need to eat them with a spoon. Right, So it's very seldom that I'm drinking down a massive amount of calories. I'm, I'm allowing my mouth to begin to go to work on that food and and I eat very slowly. I chew 25 to 40 times, which is not only fantastic for your jaw structure and the the crowding of the teeth, the nasal breathing, everything else that's involved with chewing. But it also just forces you to be in, in that more parasympathetic state and enhances the enzyme production all the more. And this idea of approaching food parasympathetically is very important. What are some other strategies? Well, people say sitting is the new smoking. I would beg to differ. I think being in any one position for too long is deleterious from a biomechanical standpoint. But I certainly think that that sitting, preferably if you can, sitting cross-legged or sitting on the floor, I think that's better than sitting in a, in our modern ninety-degree angle, you know, Victorian-era chairs that we're using now. And most of the time when I'm when I'm eating with my family, I'm sitting cross-legged in those chairs. We haven't gotten rid of all of our furniture, but you know, I I do really like that that approach you'll often find in Japan, for example, you know, sitting on cushions on the floor. But but I think that sitting to eat is one of the best things that you can do because sitting will downregulate the metabolism and, and will put you in a more parasympathetic state. And while you may not want to be in that state for eight hours a day during the workday, I think that's sitting to eat, you know, versus you know, standing to eat or walking while you're eating or moving while you're eating is important. I think that the approach that you take to food is also important. For example, as a family, we always have deep breathing before we eat, We gather around the table, deep breath in through the nose, out through the mouth, three times, We all go around and we say something that we're grateful for. We have wonderful, long family dinners. We have games like table topics or, you know, fun games like exploding kittens or unstable unicorns. Or last night we played a game called mustache where, you know, you got to do like tricks wearing a a mustache and a a fake nose. And and so we'll literally play games for like an hour to an hour and a half sometimes during dinner, but always proceeding with gratitude, with breath work, with different blessings. You know, there's one really good blessing I think it's from uh Tiknatan. You take a deep breath in, everyone gathers around the table. You take a deep breath into your nose and you say, one person who's leading the blessing says, as you all breathe in at the top of that breath, you say, I am aware of my food. Then you breathe out and you say, I smile at my food. Then you breathe in and you say, I'm aware of my body. Then you breathe out and you say, I smile at my body. Then you breathe in and you say, I'm aware of my company then you breathe out and you say, I smile at my company. And so we like to do blessings like that or different gratitude practices before a meal. We also like to taste the things that we are cooking with. So for example, if we're using olive oil as we're cooking or before dinner, I'll pour some into four different shot glasses and we'll all have a shot glass and we'll taste the olive oil and we'll look at the tasting notes and get to know that oil that has been used to dress our food or to cook our food or to marinate our food. We'll do that with wine, right? Like my kids will get a little half shot glass of wine and, and I'll have a glass with mom and we'll all go over the tasting notes of the wine, then sip it, talk about what we taste and we'll have a little toast and clink the glasses together. We do that with salts too. We let, you know, I love, I just went to India and brought back a bunch of salt from India. And, you know, I was just in Hawaii and brought back some Kona black salt. And we love to like taste the salts, taste the pepper, taste the turmeric. But really getting involved with having a sensory awareness of the things that you're using to dress up the food or accompany the food can also be really, really good for engaging the senses during a meal and helping you to be more connected with the food. So those are some things that I I think might be considered, you know, a little bit woo for some folks, but it's a parasympathetic way to approach food from a practical standpoint. This idea of ancestral food preparation tactics Right, so if I could give you a couple examples, well, a lot of people are aware of, of tactics such as you know wheat. Right, we know that if you have a nice piece of lovely slow fermented sourdough bread, like my wife makes twice a week, that that practice of of that that long slow fermentation will predigest many of those large gluten proteins and uh, degrade a lot of the phytic acids, and it even lowers the glycemic index of of the sugars in the wheat. And so you wind up getting a bread that's more metabolically favorable than bread you might buy at the grocery store. And that's something that fermentation can do to wheat. We know that, that milk, you know, when it's fermented, you pre-digest a lot of those lactose sugars, you lower the glycemic index, you increase the bacterial count. That's another example, whether it's kefir or, or yogurt or any other ferment that you might make with dairy. You're just, you're just basically enhancing the digestibility and also the, the nutrient density of that food. Quinoa, right? We know that in South America, they'll they'll take their quinoa and, and rinse it and then soak it and, and rinse it again, then soak it and rinse it again. They'll take the water that they've used to soak that quinoa and use it often to wash their clothing because of the the saponins, the soap-like irritant that covers the quinoa, that built-in plant defense mechanism that allows that seed to live to see another day and to propagate as a mammal poops the undigested seed out elsewhere. But that fact also means that if you just buy quinoa, let's say your bag of quinoa from Costco and you make quinoa because everybody said that was the latest sexy superfood. And the next day you're painting the back of the toilet seat or there's quinoa in your crap. The reason is because you haven't rendered it digestible. You haven't actually engaged in these ancestral slow food prep tactics. So right now I'm eating a lot of seeds. And normally if I were to just like take seeds and eat them, I would have digestive distress just because of, you know, they, they can cause some issues as far as like inflammation of the diverticula and, and inflammation of the GI tract as a whole and could even contribute to leaky gut or gut permeability issues just because seeds are just chock full of plant defense mechanisms, you know like lectins and phytic acid inhibitors and and a lot of gliadin-like proteins. And there's, there's a lot of issues with seeds. But I have uh, right now up in the pantry, red clover, alfalfa, and broccoli. I bought a big bag of them when this whole pandemic hit, just because I began to look at the things that I, I would need around at home to be able to have a lot of nutrient-dense food without an enormous expense. So what I do with those seeds is I've got two huge glass mason jars. And every five days you know, I'll, I'll put about a half cup of those seeds into the glass mason jars. I cover them with water and I let them soak for a little while. And then, then I, I rinse them and I soak them again. Then I rinse them and then they go in the pantry in a cold, dark corner of the pantry, kind of upside down with a little, uh, little mesh lid. And, you know, the first day you start to see little sprouts come out. And for me, it's about five days for that sprout to be about an inch long and for there to be little leaves coming out of the seeds, and at that point they're ready. They're digestible. They're unlocked. They're they're safe. They're nutrient dense. And I then take them out. I I put them not in direct sunlight because uh, UVA and UVB radiation for seeds are very fragile. You Need to be careful with with sprouting. There's kind of a whole process behind it. So I don't put them out in the sunlight, but I'll put it on the kitchen table where they have a little bit of natural light, and you can watch that chlorophyll develop, and they get all green, and they're amazing. I, I take one mason glass jar and just put that in a little. Pyrex glass container in the refrigerator and use that to dress up smoothies and, and salads and you know anything else where I want to add a little bit of extra nutrients to. And then I'll I'll take another jar of the seeds and and put them in the food dehydrator and cover them with some of that amazing salt. And I have like this dehydrated, crunchy sprout trail mix almost that I can just chomp on whenever I'd like. So the process of unlocking the nutrient density of foods that have built in plant defense mechanisms, while at the same time increasing their digestibility, paired with approaching food in a very parasympathetic manner, I think are two of the best things that you can kind of have in your back pocket. And especially while people are are stuck at home on you know quarantine during during this time at the time we're recording this possibly for you know another month another month and a half or two learning how to ferment learning how to soak learning how to sprout learning how to do shoots and microgreens and and make yogurts even just do something as simple as cutting open a cabbage with some water and some salt and making a countertop sauerkraut for pennies on the dollar. Not only is this going to be super important as I anticipate an increasingly shorter food supply, but it's also just just a way to become more intimately connected to your food while improving your health simultaneously.
0: Man, I absolutely love this stuff. I think this is so far off the radar of most people. Do you write about it in your book?
1: Yeah. There's a few sections in my book where, you know, I've got some different soaking and sprouting and fermenting charts, a few different recipe plans. And actually speak of the devil right now as part of this quarantine with a little bit more time at home, I've started to amass a large collection of, of recipes. I kind of have imposter syndrome when it comes to cooking because my wife is from Montana and grew up on a ranch and she's Wonderful, you know, farmer, rancher, domestic engineer. We have goats and chickens and eight different raised gardens, and she's just a wizard in the kitchen, doing everything from slow fermented sourdough cinnamon rolls to fantastic, you know, what did she make last night? It was just it was great. It was like fermented beets with goat cheese over a bed of spinach with some some pickles that she'd made from the harvest last year and a big uh, pork butt that she used the beet juice from the beets to kind of like do a glaze over the pork butt. And so I pull up to a dinner like that and it's like, I can I can cook a ribeye and make some sprouts. But I've really begun to to branch out in the kitchen and do a lot of verments, a lot of yogurts, a lot of sprouts. So I'm working on a cookbook now to, to follow up boundless. But if I could throw one more, actually, your audience would probably dig this. We're turning to that discussion of like mTOR, fasting, et cetera. I know you've probably covered glycine before and the importance when it comes to excess mTOR activation of not having very very high levels of methionine especially when you're not balancing that out with glycine one of the failures of a improperly comprised carnivore diet would be neglecting that nose to tail approach right like not having a lot of more glycine rich foods, such as the organ meats you know the marrows the broths etc the muscle meat itself well it tastes fantastic and is wonderful for anabolism and mTOR activation one of the reasons for that is very high methionine also leucine to a certain extent but comparatively poor in glycine And so increasing the amount of of glycine containing amino acids that are foods that contain glycine amino acid in them, I think is important. The cool thing about glycine is it has a real appetite stabilizing effect and it can improve sleep as well. So one of the things that I do is I take probiotic capsules and I break them open into either goat's milk or coconut milk. And I just put that in a ceramic bowl and then I'll put it into a food dehydrator overnight at about 110 degrees. You could use an oven. You use a yogurt maker, anything more. But if you do that and you add just a little bit of sugar and a little bit of prebiotic fiber, like uh, acacia fiber or any of these prebiotic blends that are that are sold now what happens is those probiotics just vastly multiply far over and above what you get in the actual capsule one really good strain for this by the way is l ruderi because l ruderi is one strain that will really help with sleep and it also causes a natural release of oxytocin you know if you use that it really makes you feel good there are you know little l ruderi tablets you can buy on Amazon And they don't have a very high bacterial count. But if you kind of crush them up in a mortar and pestle and then dump them into your yogurt or dump them into your goat's milk in a little ceramic bowl, add a touch of sugar, add a touch of prebiotic fiber... And then you ferment that, right? So you put it in a food dehydrator or you'll put it in the oven or you'll put it in a yogurt maker, you know, around 110 degrees, leave it in there for half a day to a day. Once the yogurt's ready, you take it out and get some jello powder or some Great Lakes gelatin or anything that, that's got that gelatin, which is going to be super rich in the glycine. And I tend to use a lot. I'll put like five heaping tablespoons in to a little batch of yogurt and, you know, stir that all up while the yogurt's still a little hot, the glycine and the gelatin and everything dissolve. And then toss that in the refrigerator the other thing i'll put in there is like some stevia a little bit of vanilla some cinnamon you know flavored up a little bit so it tastes good it makes jello right it makes jello not jello with all the artificial colors and preservatives that you get from buying packets of jello at the grocery store but just your own homemade jello but it's jello that's super rich in probiotics as well and of course incredibly high in glycine and i am telling you if you have one tiny little square of that jello before you go to bed at night your appetite is super satiated without having a lot of late night feedings. So that's my dessert most nights is I have some homemade probiotic infused Jello, and it just gives you these amazing nights of sleep. If you tend to wake at like 1 or 2 a.m. with low blood sugar, it's one of the coolest tricks I've been using lately to kind of like have my cake and eat it two at night without spiking blood glucose and also balancing out methionine a little bit. So if, if anybody out there wants to get on the Jello bandwagon, I would highly recommend it.
0: And that sounds amazing. I'm gonna make it tonight and I'll report on it for everybody. Is that recipe on your website somewhere, Ben?
1: Yeah, it is. I think I, I featured it in one of my weekly roundups recently. I'll weave it into this this little cookbook I'm making too. But it's not that hard to figure out how to make jello.
0: Yeah, very cool. So I think that like I said, this is so far off of everyone's radar right now because so many people in our society are so disconnected from our food supply. And that's sure. one of the reasons why I you know, really want to encourage my children to come out and do that event we're doing, the father son we're doing in Idaho, because I mean, I grew up disconnected from my food supply. I grew up eating like shit like many American people. And I love to just get into this realm of one I ask, like when was the last time you ate something that, that was processed or not prepared by you or someone you knew and loved, right? Like guessing there's not a lot of potato chips and bagged canned foods around your house.
1: No, there's there's a hell of a lot of glass mason jars at our house just because we almost everything's stored in that. There, there are some things. Like we order a lot from uh, Wild Planet Sardines huge fan of the smash diet you know especially for my kids right when you look at the myelin sheaths, they're primarily comprised of oleic acid and DHA and we're getting the oleic acid from those olive oil tastings that we're doing we eat olive oil snobs we always have these amazing spicy olive oils you know it's a good Is olive oil, oil if you
0: fresh yet or no
1: yeah what's that
0: it's not anything better than the fresh press olive oil company you can't go with them
1: I haven't found much better than them. You know, I love them. I suspect their olive oils might be slightly pricier than what you might be able to find and hunt down on your own if you want to go do all the sourcing like TJ does. But, you know, it's so convenient to just have him go out and hunt down the best ones and ship them to me. I'm fine with that. And, you know, I I do other oils. You know, I'm a big fan of black seed oil. That one's also at this time really good because it has some nice antiviral effects.
0: What's black seed in your
1: favorite? Black seed oil, if you look it up, it's incredibly nutrient dense. It's, it's got one of the highest ORAC scores of any oil out there. Even topically, it's wonderful, you know, kind of like Manuka honey. It's wonderful for, for wounds and rashes and skin healing topically. It's really potent, really pungent. You don't need much. But at lunch, you know, I'll take some of those sprouts I make and just put a teaspoon or so of black seed oil on there. It's almost like a health tonic, kind of like apple cider vinegar or something like that. So I have certain things that are just staples in my pantry, you know, baking. Soda, vitamin C, apple cider vinegar, black seed oil is is one of those. Avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil. We have a lot of ghee, a lot of macadamia nut oil. But uh, olive oil is one that I I make sure the boys get on a near daily basis. And then sardines, mackerel, anchovy, herring, and salmon, that whole kind of smash. Our pantry is just full of wild planet. We also do a lot of orders from U.S. wellness meats and from Belcampo meats just because. When it comes to liver, heart, sweetbreads, kidney, even some of the bigger cuts like the big bone-in ribeyes you know, with the nice marbly ends. I hunt and I have a freezer full of really good lean meat from axis deer, from sheep, from goat, from whitetail deer, etc. But I still like those big fatty cuts of beef ribeye. I can only get one liver right out of a whitetail where I can, I can order a whole bunch from U.S. Wellness Meats or from Belcampo. And so those would arguably be packaged foods that we order, keep in the freezer and and typically include in the diet and rotate in along with the fish on a regular basis. But I would say that the main packaged food you would find in our pantry would be a ton of stuff from Wild Planet olive oil, of course. And you know, then some random things. I'm, I'm a big fan of Japanese cuisine. So I've got a lot of dashi. I've got a lot of kombu. I've got a lot of nori wraps. I, I typically work those in with lunch a lot just because the iodine, the selenium, a lot of the minerals in those pair really well with these smaller cold water fish. So I kind of do a, a bastardized mashup of wild planet fish and, and stuff from Japan for lunch over some of the sprouts that I make. But ultimately there's not a lot of a lot of packaged and, and processed foods at our house. No, we're, we're not big, uh, big Trader Joe's people.
0: For a long time, you had a member size Is this something you and Jessica kind of combine on and, and teach people on a regular, ongoing basis to be able to connect with
1: their food, to be able to understand
0: these processes?
1: For about three years, yeah, we, we had something called the Healthy Home Workshop, where Jess and I would sit down and do a member's webinar uh, once a month and answer listeners' questions. And then uh, once a month, we would take all her recipes, all of our family meal plans, the breakfast, lunches, the the dinners, any cleaning chemicals or, you know, personal supplies that she was making. You know, kind of similar to like what Katie Wells over at Wellness Mama does. You know, she has a great website for a lot of those those personal done for you household cleaning chemicals and personal care products. And Jessa does a lot of the same, even though she's not really out there, right? She doesn't have her own website or you know, her own social media platform or anything like that. She kind of just hides behind the scenes. But, but we did for about three years up until about two years ago, do that and kind of got to the point where just want to spend more time with the boys and, you know, taking care of the things she's taking care of around the house and, you know, all the PDFs, all the downloads, we package those into two different packages. And they're just for sale, I think for like 97 bucks on my website, we no longer do that too often. Most of my weird recipes or random things that we do as far as like, you know, what did I make the other day? Oh, I made i I'm also really into Ayurvedic medicine. And so every morning I do things like tooth scraping and coconut oil pulling, right? For the health of the oral microbiome. I made my own little coconut oil bites infused with peppermint and oregano and cinnamon with a little food mold. And so when I wake up in the morning, I pop one of those in my mouth and swish it around in the mouth for about 15 minutes a little recipes like that that I do typically those just wind up on my Instagram page
0: I've never heard that I've never heard anybody using but how exactly how does that work what are you doing
1: if you look at the beauty and symmetry chapter of the book I get into not only different nasal breathing tactics for the jaw and the teeth and the facial structure and, and some different jaw massage and jaw release tactics but also get into this concept of coconut oil pulling for the health of the gums and for cleaning up bacteria that accumulates in the mouth overnight. And if you look at Ayurvedic medicine, it's a practice that goes way back that along with tongue scraping, just scraping some of the bacteria off the tongue from the back to the front, which takes about three seconds. So when I get up, you know, I wander over to the sink in the master bedroom and I wash my face and put a little lotion on. But then I scrape the tongue, which takes like three seconds. And then I go downstairs. And one of the first things I do is I'm tooling around the house is I just open the fridge and pop one of those little coconut oil bites into my mouth, swish it around You know, I'm making coffee and, you know, just walking around, getting ready for the day and then spit it out in the trash can, not in the sink or the toilet, because we learned this the hard way. It actually, it'll clog up the plumbing, this like thick oil that you spit out of your mouth. So you spit it in the trash can, you swish out your mouth with water and it kind of exercises your mouth and your jaw in the morning. You're swishing, it's going between all little cracks. So it's almost like oil flossing. I went to the dentist for the first time in eight years about, this is actually about a year ago. And they were very nervous because they were going to do teeth cleaning. They were very nervous because they looked at my records and it had been so long since I'd been in and they were afraid that my gums were going to be bleeding and it was just going to be a mess. And they said, "My nothing happened. I mean, my gums were in amazing health. My teeth were in amazing health. I've never had a cavity. I've never had any teeth issues. And I attribute a great deal of that to this practice of, of coconut oil pulling and caring for my biome. So I coconut oil pull in the morning and then I just brush my teeth once at night. No flossing only if I have a ribeye. Yeah. I, I got a whole drawer full of those toothpicks in the kitchen cabinet because honestly, I a a ribeye probably three nights a week.
0: Yeah. You've got a very unique perspective and ability to express your spiritual belief and love to hear kind of this direction you've taken. And if, I mean, I, do, I watch it from externally how you have really shifted your connection with, with source, with soul, with spirit, whatever you want to call it. Let's have you just kind of guide down that path of how that started for you. And you know you incorporate some psychedelics and have a great perspective on that. I'd love to hear a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I don't have a, a sexy wounded healer story as much as I believe that we're all on a path to enlightenment. Some of us on a perhaps a more accelerated path than others. But this idea of vibrating at a level of peace and love and joy, as, as David Hawkins would put it in his book, Healing and Recovery is something that I think we should all be progressing towards. And, you know, what I realized, you know, around the same time I I really started writing Boundless and getting into longevity and anti-aging is that those vibrational frequencies are not achieved through body and brain optimization. They simply aren't, you know, you can't smart drug and nootropic your way into that. You cannot exercise your way into that level of fulfillment and that level of happiness And satisfaction through exercise or through learning how to memorize a deck of cards or play two different musical instruments or pick up new skills. So, I think a lot of people will try to scratch that itch of fulfillment by either amassing belongings, cars or homes or gold or silver or guns or whatever else, or sardines, or they'll try to achieve that via becoming a renaissance person, right? Becoming a super learner, which I have nothing against, or by becoming incredibly fit, right? Which I, as you have been at that point in my life and realized that at, at the top of that mountain, it's also very unfulfilling at the end of the day. I don't think it's a bad thing to be super fit. I don't think it's a bad thing to be super smart. I don't think it's a bad thing to own nice things as long as those nice things don't own you, but none of those will bring fulfillment. And it's that deep internal spiritual happiness and having a sense of peace because you have cared for your soul. You've cared for your spirit. And you've grown to understand that really the best thing that you can do in life is to. Develop a very strong purpose, a very strong purpose based on what your skills are, what the unique skills that you were born with and meant to use are, and then go out and, as much as you can, love others with that purpose. And if you can even define your purpose in one single succinct statement, you know, I, Ben Greenfield, empower people to live a more adventurous, joyful, and fulfilling life. And if I can say that statement when I'm super stressed out, when the, you know, bolts are flying out from the email inbox of my computer, and then I can say, and I will go out and love others with that purpose, figure out any way you can to love others with that purpose. And that's a very good way to kind of start down that path to happiness and fulfillment. And sometimes knowing that purpose does take soul searching, not only a f- uh, focus on the spiritual disciplines like uh, Richard Foster. He's a great author who has wonderful works on meditation, fasting, silence, solitude, prayer, connection to a higher power. There's another book that our family is going through right now called The Handbook of Spiritual Disciplines. We're doing a year and a half long course through that right now. So we go through one chapter every two weeks and it goes over everything from from celebration to having one day of the week that you leave holy and and a time for rest and family to gratitude to service. You know, it goes above and beyond what Richard Foster outlines, which are like eight different spiritual disciplines. There's like 50 different spiritual disciplines in that book. And so part of it is using the spiritual disciplines to not only care for your soul, but also to come to know yourself better and what your true purpose might be. But as you've just alluded to, for some people, it can also include medicines. It can include forays Mm -hmm. of ego disillusion in a very responsible manner where you might use something like ayahuasca or DMT or or ketamine or any of these other substances that when used responsibly kind of shut down the ego, the I, the selfishness, the narcissism from speaking and Mm -hmm. Allow you to come to better know what it is that your true purpose is in life. And while I'm not a hefty user of plant medicine, and overabused, used in the wrong situations, used as a crutch, used as a feel-good drug with an excuse that you're just doing it for self-discovery, right? It's easy to get your hands on MDMA and feel amazing for the weekend, and come out the other end and make the excuse that you laid around an MDMA all weekend at your house. You know, I went to a dance party in MDMA because you were on a journey of self-discovery when there was zero integration and zero preparation. And so I think you do need to be careful with that. I think there are many people in our realm on their 38th ayahuasca retreat who have not really integrated or implemented much of any of those self-discoveries just because they haven't done the hard work on the back end. I'm running a little bit short on time, but I want to give you two examples. My wife and I, on a quarterly basis, under the supervision of a facilitator, do couples therapy. Part of that couples therapy is... You know, our facilitator uses about, he's actually got dozens of different Amazonian medicines that he uses in combination, but Jess and I will usually journey separately in, in a very ego dissolved state and then come together, sitting, facing each other in bed for about six to eight hours. And at that point, we have a little digital recorder set between the two of us and we have a very long conversation about family, about God, about our relationships. But as anyone knows, many of these plant medicines are, you know, they're almost like truth serum, right? Like it's, you know, some of the most amazing connected discussions that we ever have. Not that you have to have plant medicine to have a good relationship, but we have found that in a responsible setting to be, to bring us very close together and to allow us to just have these long discussions with our egos completely dissolved. And it's been amazing for a relationship. One other example that I can give you is I'm taking my boys for the past several months, and we'll continue to do this for several months through some very intensive breath work in the sauna where they're very hot. They're very uncomfortable. We're doing intermittent hypoxia. We're doing holotropic breathwork practice. We're doing, you know, nasal work practice, bellows breathing, pranayama breathing, tantric pelvic holds, you know, all manner of breath work. And then we're following that up with some pretty uncomfortable, you know, soaks in the cold pool with box breathing and deep nasal breathing and closing the eyes, focusing on the third eye, dropping the tongue to the bottom of the mouth, finding the deep empty space in the back of the eyes. And I'm taking them through all this hard shit. When they're 13 or 14, I will have them as part of their rite of passage, go through a plant medicine ceremony, right? Where their egos will be dissolved and they'll be able to even more deeply delve at that young age into learning more about themselves and their purpose in life. But the reason I bring that up as an example is I think that anybody that's considering plant medicine as a means of spiritual enhancement, I think that they should do the hard work first. They should go through a period of intensive fasting, breath work, meditation, maybe going off into the wilderness, you know, for a seven to 14 day trip, going out to the Boulder survival school and doing their, you know, their month long trip, doing things that involve a more stoic approach to ego disillusion and to spiritual enhancement. And then I would consider the fast track. So you can find God, through two hours of holotropic breathwork laying flat on your back in the sauna with sweat coming out your eyeballs and your diaphragm sore the next day from that breathwork, the DMT release is profound and you do go to, to a very far out place or admittedly, you could in two and a half seconds take a hit on a DMT vape pen and be right there to that same spot. But the former I think is character building. The latter is habit forming and kind of like a cheap synthetic way to get into the same place. I'm not saying I have anything against the use of something like DMT, you know, as a spiritual molecule to to bring you closer to God and to to kind of see the universe in a different sense, but I think there's a lot of value to be had from doing the hard work first.
0: One final question, man, regarding your kids. Have you ever considered or are you a little worried about them being too spiritually advanced or too connected in this really disconnected world? Like, it seems as though there may be some consideration there. Like, I'm sure at some point in your spiritual journey, there comes a point where you start to question everything. You start to question the reality that we live in and the world that we live in and and the morals and the values and the politics. And like, I think you've probably reached that at some point in your life where you almost become jaded with everything that exists in the world and you start to wonder how you fit.
1: Yep. We don't fit. And this is difficult. This will be a controversial reply to your question, but we don't fit. I personally believe that if we are truly to change this world and we're to step outside the mold and go beyond the status quo and actually truly love others as deeply as we should love them. And if we are to truly sacrifice ourselves, if we are to perhaps live a life where we're off volunteering more, serving more, Finding ways that we can help others more. That's kind of an unselfish attitude towards life. And it does mean that for some people or for some parents, it means putting aside the dreams of your child becoming the star quarterback. Or, you know, my kids had tennis rackets in their hands at age two. They still do play tennis nearly every day. But when they first started playing tennis, it was because I had this idea in the back of my head that they could go, you know, go on to from high school to Stanford and. Go from Stanford to pro tennis. And I was going to bless them with that early in life. And it's their child being a star pitcher or the star quarterback. But I don't know, throwing on a leather ball, hitting a little green ball across the net, you know, hitting a home run, as pleasurable as that might be and as fun as that might be, I think at the end of the day, it's not going to produce a world changer to groom a child to fit into that mold versus grooming a child to perhaps be. A Buddha, a Muhammad, a Jesus, a person who might actually be traveling the world when they're 30 years old in a dirt cheap pair of sandals and a cloak on their back, volunteering in India or helping to bring water systems into some region of Africa or or something else that's very others facing. So, yeah, I risk my kids potentially being so disconnected from or so connected to themselves and to the universe as a whole that they might wind up having a weird job when they grow up, right? They might not wind up being happy being the star quarterback or playing tennis at Stanford. But you know what? I think that even though that might be weird, we need more people in this world who will on their deathbed say, I was who I truly know that I was called to be, not who the world expected me to be. And I think too many of us live our lives being who the world expects us to be and not living life to our true calling. And I think that by kids being engaged spiritually at an early age, I think they're ultimately gonna be better equipped to achieve their true calling in life.
0: That's such a great perspective. I've never thought of it. And I think this idea of being, rather than being me-centric or we-centric, you know, or world-centric, I think that's a brilliant way to approach that, and I I love the fact that you thought that through at such a high level. Yeah, for your time, I will call it here because I know you've got a timeline. So I think everyone. I could
1: I could talk to you forever, but I got a meeting with my financial team at noon to talk about how we're going to approach this whole coronavirus issue. Because as you know, things have massively changed, and they want to talk to me about gold and silver and cryptocurrency and what to hold, what to sell, and so so yeah, I have a pretty important conversation coming up. Otherwise. Otherwise, I could talk to you for not that our conversation is important, but I feel like we could talk for hours.
0: I yeah, I'm sure we will when I mean, our father son trip, and I hope oh, man, I really look forward to that because I think you have a lot of wisdom to share with all of us. Yeah, me too. Thanks
1: so much for your time, right. dude. Yeah, catch you later. I love you.
0: So, what do you think? brilliant brilliant conversation ben is an absolute encyclopedia of information if you haven't already listened to his podcast i highly suggest you head over to bengreenfieldfitness.com check out his podcast grab some of his free content his free ebooks so much value from this guy and i'm super grateful to have had him on the podcast and for all the amazing information super grateful to call ben a friend and i really support him and his mission and all this information now to be honest I love this idea of living ancestrally, and Ben really perpetuates it. And honestly, someone I look up to for some of the things that I'd love to do in the future, I think the, the idea of growing your own food, of killing your own food is powerful. It's very, very powerful, especially in this challenging world we, we exist in, where if you don't have these skills, you know, at some point, the food quality seems to continuously be declining. And there's certainly diamonds in the rough. Like There's companies out there who are actually doing it right. like. Belcampo, who's a company who doesn't sponsor the podcast, but they're you know friends of the podcast and they're amazing people, and that's Anya Fernald. And if you're not already taking advantage of their awesome hookup for our community head over to the muscle intelligence facebook community and and they're going to give you guys a great discount to access high quality meat during this time but people like that give me hope and people like ben give me hope to realize that we can do this we can live ancestrally we can really maximize nutrition right it's the goal shouldn't just be to consume more goal should be to consume what your body needs and things that are nutrient dense and healthy and ultimately diverse and i think we get myopically focused on one type of diet and get dogmatic toward keto or carnivore or veganism or whatever it happens to be. And I think everything has its place and whether that's you know, cyclically according to the seasons or whether that's cyclically according to your training cycles or whatever season life happens to throw at you, learning how to adapt and have a skill and ultimately have a tool belt is the best way to approach this stuff, right? Learning all of these skills that people hand out to you and going, hey, does this work for me? First and foremost, that requires you try it, test some things out, do 30 days of carnivore, do 30 days of keto. It doesn't mean you do it forever. It's like, hey, what happens to my body? How did I feel? What do my hormones look like? I'm currently running an experiment on some supplements. And I was like, hey, what's happening in my blood work when I'm taking these supplements? Does it actually move the needle for me as far as the Micronutrient profiles and ratios in my blood and my tissues, and you have to, what does it do for me? Let's experiment and see what happens. And does that mean it works for everybody? Absolutely not. But this is the type of stuff you guys should be exploring. And hopefully, during this COVID time, you're taking advantage of at least doing one thing each day. It's an experiment, and maybe lock it in for a month or lock it in for a week and see how does it make you feel. Does it make you feel better? You know, there's a lot of people asking right now about sleep management, so I'm going to do a live Facebook over the coming weeks, and it will be live and there will be present in the facebook community so if you're not already remember there head over there to muscle intelligence facebook community and we'll let you in no cost and like that just want to get you guys the best information and create an amazing community of wonderful people who are living this altruistic life of helping giving and leading with their heart and I hope you're all having an amazing day live your greatest life in a body you absolutely love and i want to give one final shout out to our episode sponsor, blue blocks these guys are keeping us moving, keeping us going, and supporting you guys, especially if you're spending a lot of time in front of the computer or the television at this time. Get yourself a pair of blue blocking glasses. B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com and use the code MUSCLE to get 15% off. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode.